We hope everybody had a nice two weeks. For some of you listening through the archives, it may have only been three minutes, but welcome back anyway. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. And I'm Oisper Chen. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Our first link comes from ZME Science, and it asks an important question that I'm sure is on everyone's minds. Do you like cheese? Yes. That's a hard yes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Where would you guess was the earliest known producer of dairy and dairy products? Mesopotamia? (laughs) That's a pretty early guess, but no. (laughs) I mean, mammals have been lactating for a long time. Yeah. So I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm going to double down with way I say the Middle East. Okay. You guys are pretty close. It's <laughs> the Indus Valley Civilization, which is huh. the lands that make up modern day Pakistan and India. All right. So I'm going to say close in terms of like rough regions, but. Uh, yeah, prob- probably don't I'll say that it. to the people who live there. They're no, right. no, no. <laughs> this, this is uh, my American public school education geography right. showing here. But uh, <laughs> the Indus Valley has been producing dairy for almost 5,000 years now, according to researchers at the University of Toronto. Hmm. They have been doing some research looking at ancient pottery. And the analysis they did revealed that dairy was not only present in diets at the time, but was in fact quite common. Hmm. Out of 59 pottery shards that were analyzed, they found 21 that had traces of dairy fats. So now, but do they know what kind of animal dairy fat? Or are they just saying it might be goats? It Like, who knows? Actually, the origin can be determined based on the ratio of carbon isotopes they contain. And based on the chemical composition of these fats, they were able to determine what food the animals who produced them ate. Hmm. But it does show that not only was dairy an important part of the diet, but possibly had some implications for economy and commerce. They were able to do this analysis because pottery is porous, and so it absorbs some of the foods that were cooked or stored inside the pottery during its lifetime. And they were also able to look for fats because they don't dissolve in water, which made them more resistant throughout time, so they actually could survive the ages. Well, and I think we have to assume that like, if they had milk, they had cheese, because without refrigeration, milk turns into cheese pretty fast. Exactly. Yeah. So they are the current title holders for earliest dairy consumers and producers until we learn more. A worthy championship. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's one that I follow pretty closely. (laughs) All right. Next link. Next Next link. So I'll throw another history trivia question at y'all. When do you think that the idea of vampires originated? Oh, gosh. Mm. I mean, it feels like one of those stories that has to be very, very old that just sort of slowly morphed into vampires over time. It's actually much more recent than I realized. So this article comes to us from smithsonianmag.com, and it's titled Decomposing Bodies in the 1720s Gave Birth to the First Vampire Panic. Wow. That is recent. Yeah. So vampire actually comes from the Romanian word vampiri, which means returned from the dead, which you could also say is related to zombies. So I bet the idea of zombies have been around for a really long Mm. time. But the first legit vampire panic recorded was in the 1720s. So... In July 1725, locals in the village of Kisilyevo, on the outskirts of the Habsburg Empire, summoned the Cameral Provisor, a health and safety official. 
The villagers believed that Peter Blagojevich, who had died 10 weeks earlier, was up and out of his grave and bringing death to their homes. Peter's widow claimed that her husband knocked on her door after the funeral, Ooh. demanding his shoes before attempting to strangle her. Ooh. Yeah, and Blagojevich remained active over the next nine nights, attacking nine more villagers. And on waking, each victim reported that Blagojevich had laid himself upon them and throttled them. <gasps> and after suffering a mysterious 24-hour illness, they all died. Whoa. Ooh. As Frombel detailed in his official report, the village elders actually had already made their diagnosis. Blagojevich was a vampiri, which is the Serbian word for back from the dead. And Frombel's only job was just to rubber stamp this conclusion and the villagers would take it from there. So he conducts a formal autopsy on the exhumed Blagojevich and recorded the appearance and smell of the corpse as completely fresh. He noted the appearance of fresh blood around the mouth, which was supposedly sucked from the victims. And with this sort of evidence, he just couldn't find any objections to the villagers' plan of action, which was to drive a sharpened stake through Blagojevich's torso and burn the body. I mean, so the idea is that he's coming back, but then he's reburying himself every day. Yeah, evidently. Okay. You know, like, very strong finger strength, I guess. Right. <laughs> So in his report to the Habsburg authorities, Frombold accepted all the indications were present that Blagojevich was indeed a vampire, but he also refused to accept any blame if his superiors felt that his conclusion was incorrect, and basically blamed the villagers, saying that they were besides themselves with fear, and he did whatever he had to do to calm them down. And mm. as you might imagine, this report made sensational newspaper copy, uh, leading to the first printed usage of the local term vampiri, which would then soon get into all the other European languages. Mm. So... When all the plots in the graveyard were full, as was happening more and more by the end of the 17th century, sextons would actually add another layer, digging graves two rather than six feet under. Yeah, that's wow. where your problems come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And meanwhile, the bodies of the poor or any plague victims were dumped en masse just into pits, and most corpses were only clad in a fabric shroud because coffins were actually considered a luxury at the time. So all it took for the dead to rise was just a heavy rainstorm, a pack of marauding dogs, or maybe a <laughs> sloppy drunk gravedigger like in Hamlet. <laughs> Some were withered down to the bone, naturally, while others actually appeared ruddy and well-fed, more uh, lifelike than they were actually gasping on their hollow-cheeked deathbeds. That's uh, a nice ooh. little <laughs> depiction from this article. And medical science at the time couldn't explain these post-mortem anomalies, but folk tradition did have a name for them, which came from the French verb revenir, as in to come back. Mm. So if you've heard of the term revenant, it's sort of a similar thing. Mm. So by any name, these monsters were believed to be the result of improperly observed burial rites or a suspicious death. And we covered the medieval cure, exhume, stake, decapitate, and burn, and then scatter the ashes in running water. So pretty hardcore. But, you know, that definitely makes sure the corpse does not come back, no matter what the corpse actually is. Yeah, and from a sanitation standpoint, if you're burning the body instead of burying it, you've eliminated the disease and gotten rid of the corpse. So it does help a little bit. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So... As the Age of Enlightenment started to take hold, this solution did start to look like superstitious nonsense, especially to Catholic and Protestant bishops keen to move with the times and away from witch hunts. Mm -hmm. So by the early 18th century, parish priests were actually forbidden to carry out any of these rituals. Mm -hmm. But vampires still persisted. 
When their reports of the returned dead fell on deaf ears, tax-paying parishioners called their local government rep. <laughs> and in late 1731, this was Austro-Hungarian regimental field surgeon Johann Fluckinger. <laughs> and this time, the suspected vampire Zero was an Albanian named Arnold Pohl. And when he was alive, Paul claimed he had protected himself from a vampire's bite by eating dirt from its tomb and cleansing himself with its blood. However, these precautions did not prevent him from breaking his neck when he fell off a hay wagon. I guess he was focused on the wrong preventative measures. <laughs> so 40 days after his demise, four villagers declared that the deceased Paul had returned to torment them, and then those four promptly expired. The local elders, advised by their administrator, disinterred Paul's corpse and found completely fresh blood flowed from his eyes, ears, and nose. Hmm. Settled by this clear evidence, the locals drove a stake through the torso, whereupon he let out a noticeable groan and bled copiously. Ugh. Okay, so I mean, could more than a few of these examples have been people who were prematurely declared deceased and effectively still dying or buried alive? Possibly. I mean... So the article doesn't go too much into what the actual causes were. It, yeah. That is certainly possible, but it also could be the disease or plague or whatever causes bleeding from orifices mm. because, you know, there were all those sorts of nasty things around back right. then. And the groaning, I think I've read, has been a result of gases being released by the body when right. it's punctured, yeah. which just runs through the body. So gnarly stuff one way or the other. <laughs> I'm really impressed with how much overlap there is between vampires and zombies, like you noted. Yeah. When did the teeth and the drinking of blood come in? I mean, I guess you said the first guy was satisfying himself on their blood and had blood around his mouth. Yeah, I think that's probably where that primary myth came from. Mm -hmm. And also... Powell the Vampire had apparently sucked on calves during his rampage. <laughs> and as the contaminated cattle matured and were slaughtered, those who consumed the meat also became infected, resulting in as many as 17 new vampires. Oh. So there's this whole idea of eating and the transmission of vampirism mm -hmm. via mm -hmm. the mouth and ostensibly But somewhere the along the way, we lost our calf middleman. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally safe to eat a burger prepared by a vampire. Just don't let him in your house. <laughs> <laughs> so, as the expert in contagious diseases, Fluckinger systematically ordered exhumations and conducted autopsies on all of the suspects, and in the interest of preventing an epidemic and further panic in the village, he sought a scientific explanation for their sudden deaths and the apparent anomalies in decomposition, but he couldn't find any evidence of known diseases. So folk hypothesis trumped science as the most plausible diagnosis. As it does. Yeah. <laughs> and Fluckinger classified each of the corpses before him as either decomposing or uncorrupted. Given his imperial loyalties, it's not that surprising he tended to label outsiders who were either Turks or peasants as vampires oh, yeah. and had them dealt with in the traditional manner. Whereas those from wealthier Hungarian families, like the wife and newborn baby of the administrator, were quietly reinterred in consecrated ground. Mm. So even in undeath, you know, you can't really get away from politics. And right. <laughs> Privilege. We can be racist yeah. against a dead guy, too. Yeah. <laughs> so urban planners like London's Christopher Wren advocated for cemeteries outside city limits as early as 1708. 
but Paris really led the legislative way, restricting burials in churches and urban churchyards in 1765. Hmm. And with the dearly departed now secured out of sight and out of mind, people's once real fear of marauding corpses just faded into the past. And thanks to their new fictional status, vampires thrived throughout the 1800s as these ephemeral, liminal figures amid the elegant monuments of the new necropolises that were their graveyards. That's when they got sexy. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 1804 or thereabouts. That's right. And then, you know, a couple generations later, they start to sparkle. They drive those really cute Volvo hatchbacks. I mean. <laughs> and they play a mean game of baseball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, I love a good underdog story, and this one is amazing. It comes from the CBC. Uh, it's fundamentally about a Canadian court case in 1980. But. To understand what happened, we have to go back to 1967 when a World's Fair was hosted in Montreal called Expo 67. And as you would expect with a World's Fair, many different countries had exhibitions at this fair, including the former Soviet Union. And as is the case with any major international conference, local vendors provided a lot of services to the various exhibitions because, you know, why ship everything across the ocean when you can just buy it when you get there, right? Mm -hmm. So one of these vendors was a man named Wally Edwards who ran a small printing business, and he was hired by the Soviet Union to print, you know, a bunch of banners or flyers or who knows what. But after the conference was over, they never paid him. And the amount of money they owed him was both small and big at the same time. It was $36,000, which to Wally was, of course, very significant. But from the perspective of a national government, it's nothing. And it's kind of unclear why they wouldn't pay up other than maybe they just decided they could get away with it. But Rude. Wally was a determined man, and he spent the next 13 years fighting to get his money from the government of the Soviet Union. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he, wow. he was not going to take it lying down. First, he exhausted every available avenue from the Soviet side of things. You know, he's like trying to get in touch with ambassadors and whoever he can, but he just couldn't get anybody on their side to talk to him or even acknowledge the debt in any way. But he documented everything he did, and ultimately he made it to a Canadian court and got a ruling in absentia that, yes, the Soviet Union owed him this money. And in the process of doing this, he racked up $30,000 in legal fees. So, well, of course. you know, everybody thought he was crazy, especially because the Canadian courts had no ability to actually enforce this payment. Right. They were just like, yeah, OK, we officially tell you you're right, but that doesn't mean anything. And in the meantime, the printing business itself had gone bankrupt in 1973. But Wally was just on a mission. He was not going to let this go. So this is where it gets kind of insane. With his court ruling in hand, he went to the Toronto Sheriff's Office and he said, listen, Soviet cargo ships dock every day in the Toronto Harbor. So the next time one comes into port, you're going to seize the ship as collateral on my debt. Ooh, and wow. the Toronto Sheriff was like, yeah, that's nice, buddy. I'm not going to do that. So Wally sued the sheriff for dereliction oh. of duty. And again, miraculously, the court ruled in his favor. The sheriff oh had to do it. And so the sheriff was like, fine, I guess. And so on October 3rd, 1980, the MV Stanislavski pulled into port and the local sheriff came aboard. He removed the crew and he took control of this multi-million dollar Soviet ship <gasps> as collateral for a random debt for a printing business 13 years earlier. <laughs> 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, you what, gotta, what like, were the goods on the ship? I mean, did it not matter because the ship itself had been basically taken? Yeah. I mean, I think that's what they were looking at. I, I imagine it probably came off the ship because it was bound for other places, but the ship itself was Soviet government property. Right. Therefore, oh my God. yeah. And it did get the Soviet government's attention, but for about two <laughs> weeks, they stonewalled him and kind of just tried to turn the whole thing into an international incident. They're basically like, Canada has seized one of our ships. And the Canadian government's like, uh, no, 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 a private local government has seized your ship as, you know, <laughs> <laughs> as you do, I guess. <laughs> but somehow, and I, I, at this point, I got to think like Wally is a very persuasive, charismatic guy. Because he got the courts to freeze the Soviet Union's bank accounts in Ottawa. Like, he froze the bank accounts of an entire country. (laughs) And all of a sudden, they started negotiating with him. So, (laughs) by now, Wally had a few demands beyond the original bill. First off, he wanted the $36,000 he was owed, but he wanted it in $1 bills so that the delivery of the money would be more dramatic for the press photos. Uh, (laughs) He also wanted $30,000 to cover his legal fees. And to top it off, he demanded a case of caviar and a bottle of vodka. Wow. (laughs) That's so gutsy. Yeah. It's just basically like a little, you know, thumb your nose at these guys at this point. Or, you know, 13 years worth of interest. And I think they were getting off pretty light considering there wasn't like a traditional interest rate applied to this loan. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) And he got it. Wow. When the package was delivered, Wally held a big party slash press conference in a big fancy hotel. There were Canadian flags everywhere and they had O Canada playing in the background. And (laughs) he basically dumped out this giant burlap sack of small bills while feasting on caviar. He presented his lawyers with a special commemorative beer tankard that he had made for the occasion. (laughs) (laughs) He was absolutely soaking it in at this point. He was so happy to have won. And, you know, good for him, I think. They owed him the money for sure. Oh, yeah. That was like a life's work that took place in 13 years, basically. Yeah, they don't yeah. they don't say whether like typically when you become obsessed with something like this, like along the way you lose your family, you lose all your friends. You right, know? right. And they don't mention any of that. So maybe that happened and he just didn't care because he's like, I've got my caviar. That's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, he was in the right. Yeah, it, it he sounds was. like based on all the facts here, it, good for Wally sticking yeah. to his guns. Yeah. yeah. And- I mean, honestly, he sounds like a very competent person. Mm-hmm. So maybe he was just very wisely, tactfully judged juggling all this, but as a showman the entire time. Right, right. And, you know, you got to figure maybe it's free publicity for whatever business he was running at that point. Because, the, mm-hmm. like I said, the printing business had gone bankrupt. And actually, there is a, a little twist at the end. In the middle of this big press release and party, of course, everybody had heard about this incident by then at the time. A woman showed up who said she used to work for Wally at the printing business, and she reminded him that she had never gotten her final paycheck <gasps> when the company went bankrupt. So, oh, Wally. Yeah. And, and they don't say what happened to her. I imagine he probably just gave her some money and was like, cool, whatever, I'm rich now. I mean, he's not rich. <laughs> he's barely gotten back what he was owed. Yeah, I mean, if you divide $36,000 over 13 or so years, mm-hmm. uh, it's not a ton of money to invest in. But, you know, somebody's pride is occasionally worth mm-hmm. it, I guess. Yeah. Hey, and they got the international incident that they were warned they were getting into and apparently mm-hmm. had. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe the Soviet Union learned their lesson and paid their contractors from then on out. Or maybe yeah. they didn't because they went bankrupt pretty shortly after that. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> Next link. 
Next link. Uh, Real Clear Science has a little bit of a silver lining to the climate change issue we are all dealing with. Hmm. This article is titled Three Places That Will Actually Benefit from Climate Change. Sweet. Yeah, you got to figure there's some. I mean, Texas exactly. is going to become unlivable, but some cold places <laughs> might get nice. Right. So if you're going to be, you know, charting your 20 year plan or 15 or 10, who knows what it's going to look like, you might want to consider these three regions. So the first one is right here in the USA. It's northern Minnesota and Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Hmm. The northernmost parts of Minnesota and Michigan may actually end up with more moderate temperatures and weather patterns. Officials in Duluth have even considered the slogan climate proof Duluth to kind of jump on this new information. Uh, so what Dr. Kenneth Blumenfield, a senior climatologist at the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources noted, we're not seeing worse heat waves or longer heat waves or more of those long nights that don't fall below 75 degrees. Instead, what we're seeing is warmer winters fewer days during the winter when we get to negative 30 Fahrenheit. Right. So it's a bit extreme, but because we've got extreme climate change happening, it's actually going to kind of moderate them out. Communities all along Northern America's Great Lakes will be relatively shielded from climate change as the vast bodies of water should keep the region fairly temperate. Hmm. At the same time, those municipalities are not as susceptible to rising waters compared to cities near the oceans on the coast. Right. So something to think about, right? right. I'm going to put Duluth <laughs> on my list of places to check out. Climate-proof Duluth. It's That's so right. catchy. <laughs> all right. The second region is the Nordic region. So Ooh. average temperatures in Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Finland are expected to increase more than the global average over the ensuing decades. But while this will necessitate some adaption, on the whole, the region should benefit because they're going to get expanded agricultural growing seasons. They'll even see new plant, land animal, and fish species that will thrive in the region. Well, that sounds wow. fun. I, I mean, those right? seem like nice places to live, but they have, they have limited land mass. I mean, I guess this exactly. is this is like a Mercator projection problem because I look at these maps and I'm like, I don't actually know how big the Nordic countries are <laughs> compared to... Well, and to... it's also how much usable land they have as well because right. if most of it is, you know, frozen tundras and icy fjords and everything else and it gets a little bit more temperate, they might be able to do some like mountain farming and having increased biodiversity overall. So mm -hmm. plus that region's use of electricity is projected to fall the most as opposed to all of Europe because warming winters will reduce the the demand for heating. So right. learn to speak Swedish, Norwegian, Finnish now. That's right. <laughs> All right. So the third region is, drumroll please, Canada. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Perhaps no country on earth stands to gain more from climate change than Canada. So while three quarters of nations are going to take hits to their national economies, Canada is projected to see outsized benefits. They've calculated that Canada's average national income could swell by an astounding 247%. Mm, what? Yeah. Granted, that is the deputy director on the Center of Food Security and the Environment at Stanford University, Marshall Burke, who calculated that out. So it might be a little bit rosy, but... They're also factoring in additional tourism, mm -hmm. greatly expanded growing seasons, reduced infrastructure costs, and increased maritime shipping as the Arctic region's ice cover dwindles. And not only that, with significant freshwater reserves mm -hmm. and as much as 4.2 million square kilometers of newly arable farmland, Canada could be the world's new breadbasket 
50 years into the future. Wow, just 50 years. That's pretty impressive. I mean, they, yep. they have a ton of land up there. I've seen, I just saw a map recently. There was one of those 50% of Canadians live below this red line. And yep. the, the red line was like parallel to the top of the United States. Like it was just yep. that bit of Canada that dips down in there by Michigan. And it was just like, they all live right on the border. And yeah. all of that land up north is basically just a frozen wasteland right now. And if it warmed up, man, it could be a paradise up there. It's already warming up. And I think we may even see this in our lifetime if they're projecting this into 50 years into the future. Mm -hmm. So maybe you don't have to learn Swedish and Norwegian and Finnish. Maybe you can continue speaking the Queen's bastardized English <laughs> with a couple of, you know, Zs and As. Yeah. I mean, you know, French might become a little more important than Spanish is right now, but <laughs> but if we bring I'm sure everybody, would be delighted. That's right. But if we bring everybody with us, we could totally take them over. We got more people than Canada, you guys. Oh, like, <laughs> oh that's too real of a right, right. theory to even bring up right now. I admire your bravery. Right, I, I will stop promoting war. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, next link. <laughs> next, 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 next link. This article comes to us from NPR.org and it's titled A Disturbing Twinkie That Has So Far Defied Science. Oh, uh, don't okay, they? It's all? only singular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one in particular is special. So last week, from when this article was published on the 15th, Colin Purrington remembered the Twinkies. <laughs> he was craving sweets, and he'd purchased them back in 2012 for sentimental reasons when he'd heard that the Hostess brand was going bankrupt and All Twinkies right. might just disappear. Right? I remember that. Yeah, an entire Zombieland movie was based off that <laughs> theme. Uh, so... He says, you know, when there's no desserts in the house, you get desperate. So he went down to his basement and retrieved the old box of snacks and fully intended to enjoy several. And he busted them out. But like most people, Purrington believed that Twinkies were basically immortal, although the official shelf life is actually just 45 days. He removed a Twinkie from the box, unwrapped it, looked fine, took a bite, oh. then he threw up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he describes it as tasting like an old sock, oh. not that I've ever eaten old sock. <laughs> And that's when he examined the other two Twinkies as well. Two of them looked weird. One had a dark colored blemish the size of a quarter, oh, no. and the other had completely transformed. <laughs> it was gray, shrunken, and wrinkly like a dried moral mushroom. Oh. And there's actually pictures on this NPR article if you want to check it out. It's very gross. <laughs> I highly recommend it. Wait, and they um, were still in their packaging, right? Yes, they were still in their packaging. So one of them, uh, the moral mushroom looking one, actually looks completely shrink-wrapped. Uh, again, you can find these pictures. I recommend it. Uh, so he posted the photos on Twitter, which caught the attention of two scientists who study fungi at the West Virginia University in Morgantown, Brian Lovett and Matt Casson. Lovett thought, Matt is going to want that Twinkie the instant he saw it. And <laughs> that's because, yeah, <laughs> that's because in the past, their lab had tested how well molds grow in Peeps, the classic Easter treat. <laughs> 
And fungi actually found it difficult to survive on peeps because of the food's low water content. Mm. And Kasson notes that in a way, they're kind of like an extreme environment, right? The food industry has crafted the ability to make foods that have a long shelf life. There's Twinkies and then there's the Mariana Trench. And that's those are, those are our two places. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somewhere down there, you find peeps. They're totally fine. Just haven't changed at all. So... Kasson says that fungi are everywhere and have an amazing set of chemical tools that let them break down all kinds of substances. And he says that you can even find fungi growing on jet fuel, hmm. which just blew my mind. I had no idea. Huh. The researchers immediately thought that some kind of fungus was involved in attacking the eight-year-old Twinkies because they've studied fungi that kills insects and dries them out in a similar way. So they reached out to Purrington, who was only too happy to mail them the Twinkies immediately. Uh. And he describes it as science is a collaborative sport. If someone can take this and figure out what was actually growing, I'm all in. I really want to know what species exactly was eating my Twinkies. So the Twinkies arrived at the lab, the researchers got to work, and they noticed that the wrapping on the mummified Twinkie seemed to be sucked inward, Mm. suggesting that the fungus actually got in before the package was sealed, and while the fungus was consuming the Twinkie, it was using up more air or oxygen than it was putting out. Mm. And you end up with a vacuum, which may well have halted the fungus's ability to continue to grow. So then it was just, like, ossified. Exactly. And so Lovett says that they have a snapshot of what they were sent, but it's hard to say whether this process occurred occurred five years ago and he only just noticed it now or more recently. And Lovett expected a horrific smell to hit them when they opened the snack cakes, and he says that, I thought the smell would possibly kill one of us, but because of the mummification, there was really no smell at all, which was really a pleasant surprise. <laughs> I mean, this seems, Wait, like, aren't you, shouldn't you be doing this in, like, hazmat suits? You don't want to be breathing in spores from some incredibly resilient yeah. mushroom. Yeah. Scientists yeah. are living dangerously, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, they're, you know, uh, Twinkie scientists are a different breed, I guess. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So a quick examination with a magnifying scope revealed fungal sporulation on both the marred and mummified Twinkies, again suggesting the involvement of fungi. And they actually used a bone marrow biopsy tool to drill through the tough outer layer of the gray mummified Whoa. Twinkie. <laughs> and they <laughs> they actually hit the marrow of the Twinkie and realized that there's still some cream filling on the inside. Oh, Twinkie marrow. Delicious. What? Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> They thought it would be hard all the way through, but it seems like the fungus was actually more interested on the outside than the filling on the inside. This doesn't bode well for the Twinkie structure at all. (laughs) No, no. And so they put their first little Twinkie samples in lab dishes with nutrients commonly used to grow fungi, and they had a scientific control of bits of asymptomatic Twinkie (laughs) from the same box. That is such a, like, I I want that to be, like, a username. Asymptomatic Twinkie is such a good combination of words. (sighs) Yeah. So, from the Twinkie marked with just a circle of dark mold, they were able to grow up a species of Cladosporium, which is one of the most common airborne indoor molds worldwide. And Kasson does caution that they still haven't done a DNA analysis to confirm the species from the mummified Twinkie. It may be that they just don't have any living spores, despite the wonderful, rare event that we've witnessed, Lovett says. (laughs) Spores certainly die, and depending on the fungus, they can die very quickly. However, they are not giving up. They are planning to fill lab dishes with all kinds of sweet concoctions to try to coax something back to life from the mysterious Twinkie mummy. (laughs) And meanwhile... 
Purrington has reflected on his Twinkie experience, and while his father had no objection to eating moldy foods, uh, which, what? Okay. Uh, <laughs> his mother generally treated sell-by dates with more respect. Uh, Purrington says, I'm more with my mom on expiration dates now. I think if you're browsing baked goods at the store, if you get the freshest one, it's probably going to taste better, uh, which I think is a fair conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> so holding on to a Twinkie for eight years it actually isn't that long in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. At the George Stevens Academy in Maine, there's actually a Twinkie that's been around since a science teacher started an observational experiment in 1976, which, in case you don't know, is actually 44 years ago, (laughs) because time is a vacuum currently. (laughs) So that Twinkie currently resides in the office of Libby Rosemeyer, who reports that it sits in a little glass and wood display case, much like the shield on my desk that is necessary because of the pandemic. (laughs) The venerable Twinkie will be given back to the science department, she says, when she retires at the end of the school year. And it's safe and sound for now, but nothing lasts forever. Not Twinkies and not people. And that's perhaps why people are so fascinated with this shriveled, mummified Twinkie, which I believe actually went viral on Twitter as well. (laughs) It went fungal? Is that what you... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, and and it offers such a harsh contrast to the golden sponge cake icon that lives on in people's memories. Mm-hmm. Casson says, when these memories are tainted by a visual reality like the Twinkie experiment, they're kind of caught off guard. They feel like it's a symbol of the childhood, and you can't take that from me, too. And <laughs> Lovett says... We're getting pretty deeply psychological yeah. with this. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, fungi researchers are a very fascinating people, right. you know, and, and love it <laughs> ends by saying we're living in a time where we're all really grappling with our mortality. Oh my God. Eventually, <laughs> all of us are food for fungi. That's true. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, what is the one thing that we all learned about camels in elementary school? They uh, they have water in their humps? No, it's fat. You are correct. Oh. It, it is not water, despite what they tell you in early childhood when we're all so young and impressionable. Ugh. The title of the article is, Do Camels Really Have Water in Their Humps? As with all question headlines, the answer is no. There are... <laughs> Two main aspects to the article. Number one is, how do camels go for so long without water? And two, what's in the hump? And (laughs) the, uh, (laughs) the answer to that second question, as you stated, is fat. Like a bear storing up for winter or any other animal, really, camels can store excess fat in their hump so they can live off of it for up to five months without food. And in fact, when a camel has gone for a long time without food, though we don't see it very often today because most of our camels are in zoos or in circuses or something, the hump actually flops over like a deflated (gasps) balloon. What? Yeah. I'm currently resisting the temptation to Google deflated balloon. (laughs) So, interestingly, baby camels are not born with a hump. And they don't actually get one for the first 10 months or so because every nutrient they consume goes straight towards growth. So... It's actually really important for camels to be born in the right season, assuming they're wild and not just cared for, because after they wean from their mothers, they have to have enough time to build up a hump in order to make it through their first dry season. So it's almost like those humps have to be correctly mature. Right, <laughs> I'm right. I'm sorry. They've got I'm sorry. <laughs> So, they're lovely, those those camel humps. That's okay, right. They're, they're lovely camel humps. <laughs> 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 
Incidentally, they do discuss camels with one hump and two humps, and they say that it does not appear that the two-humped camels are able to store any more fat than the one-humped camels. They just put it in two places instead of one. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's no definitive explanation as to why camels store their fat vertically instead of around their stomach like every other animal. But one theory is because being wider would expose them to more overhead sunlight and would also cause them to retain more heat around the center of their bodies. So packing it all on top helps keep them from overheating in the environment that they typically evolved in. As to the question of water, it is actually a myth that they can go for ridiculously long times with no water at all. What? They do need, I mean, they need less than most animals, but they do need some. The, mm -hmm. the truth is they just need very little water compared to most animals. And they have several really cool mechanisms in their body to help stretch those water-free time frames. Uh, so first, they can drink up to 30 gallons of water in a sitting. But it doesn't go in the hump. It just goes kind of circulating through their bodies like it would for any animal. I'm sorry. You said 30 gallons? Yes. They can, like, I mean, they have massively stretchable stomachs, I guess. I don't know. Wow. But, but yeah, I mean, they just get really bloated and waterlogged and kind of, you know, waddle around. <laughs> and second, their kidneys are extremely efficient at removing toxins. So they can pee much less often and still get rid of what they need to. So basically, ca nice. camel pee is like super toxic. Like, do not go anywhere Ooh. near that stuff because it is, it is wow. highly concentrated. <laughs> also, their stools are almost completely dry. They're like little rocks, basically. They don't lose any water in that. And then third, they actually have a structure in their nose that dehydrates their breath as they exhale. So they lose very little through water vapor. Huh. Yeah. And what I think this means, and I may be wrong, but I think that if you took a camel to a very cold climate, their breath wouldn't make little clouds of water vapor like ours does. Um, oh. I, yeah, I don't know if that's true because I was, I was thinking about it. I was like, is, is that the moisture from our actual breath or is that the moisture in the air that is being condensed by the warmth of our breath? And I don't know. I didn't look it up. <laughs> Nor does it seem particularly ethical to test that by bringing a camel to some frozy, right. icy, like, all right, buddy, just breathe it out. We're just going to watch you shiver and breathe. Right. You have to, not natural. You got to put them in a parka because they're not going to have any body fat around their middle oh, to keep them warm. <laughs> you know, oh, camel in a parka. <laughs> well, and maybe that's why they became famous for uh, smoking was to make up for the lack of water vapor. They're jealous. They want something to come out of their mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am making making mean comments about camels. Camels don't smoke kids. It's wrong. Don't. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right, just a little quickie one to kind of end us out here. This one's from CNN Travel. This Italian town has just two residents, but they still insist on wearing masks because <laughs> they are awesome, y'all. <laughs> Are, Good for them. Are they married or are they just like two people living in separate houses? It's basically two elderly men. Hmm. So I guess they've got sort of like a nice hermit alliance hmm. that's kind of happening with them. But their names are Giovanni Carilli and Giampiero Nobili. They're the only two residents of Nortosque, which is a tiny Italian hamlet. But every time they meet, they're still wearing masks and they're still socially distancing and staying a few meters apart. And part of it is one of the guys is 82, the other is 74. Sure. And Italy was obviously one of the first countries to get super hit by the virus. And so one of them said, I'm dead scared of the virus. If I get sick, I'm on my own. Who would look after me? Yeah. I'm old, but I want to keep living here, looking after my sheep, my vines, my beehives and orchard, hunting truffles and mushrooms. I enjoy my life. Wow. My God, doesn't that sound like a good life? That does. I'd wear a mask I mean, for that. They, I mean, they, I'll wear a mask for a lot yeah. less too, but. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so right now, 
now, Italians are required to observe a social distance of one meter, and while masks are mandatory in all public spaces, that's not the case for private homes. And they have been handing out fines ranging from 400 to 1,000 euros to those who are not wearing masks in some of the country's most crowded cities. But for Karelian nobili, the face coverings are a sacred rule because it would be disrespectful for either of them to ignore the strict measures put in place despite their rather exceptional circumstances. Quote, wearing a mask and respecting social distancing is not just for health reasons. It's not something bad or good. If there are rules, you need to abide by them for your own sake and other people. It's a matter of principle. So even when they meet for an espresso at one of their houses, they're at either end of a two meter long table ah. with their masks on. Nice. Hmm. One of the guys was born in the village, but spent most of his life making cured meats in Rome before returning to live in his childhood home after his retirement. And the other guy, who was the brother of Carilli's brother-in-law, also chose to reside here during his twilight years. He makes artisan jewelry, explaining that the abundance of nature in the town, which is surrounded by beautiful forests, helps to inspire his art. So the city used to be a little bit more hopping, but <laughs> a lot of former residents escaped to Rome and other cities to find work following a series of earthquakes in Italy during the late 90s. Mm. So they basically have the town to themselves most of the time. They sometimes have tourists, but it's really hard to get to. You have to really intentionally go up this mountain pathway. You know, if they need a doctor, they need to go out of town. They have to leave to get groceries if they can't produce it themselves. But, you know, one of the guys makes a lot of money with his truffle dog, his best companion. <laughs> so it's got a little bit more about the history of the town, things like that. But the main takeaway is if these old guys in Italy can do it, so can we all. That's right. Did you guys see mm -hmm. that thing from one of the Italian mayors back when Italy was going through it really, really badly? Oh, yeah. There was the a super clip. cut of them just railing yes. at everybody. So one of them was like, I will come after you with a flamethrower. Like, they were serious. <laughs> they were awesome. Wow. Yeah, I loved that. And God, what an innocent time that was. It was really before <laughs> things started to hit us here. Right. Like, Boy, those guys. Right. They're, <laughs> they're very enthusiastic. I wonder why. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Life is good, y'all. Wear your mask, wash your hands. That's right. And if nothing else, you know, when the population is greatly reduced, we can all farm truffles in our individual little hamlets. <laughs> mm, the Austin truffle. It really does sound idyllic. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Many of the articles we did not have time to get to are on daminteresting.com. Some of those include how 30 lines of code blew up a 27-ton generator. I fell five stories from a New York rooftop and survived. And animals keep on evolving into crabs, which is somewhat disturbing. If you are new to the podcast, we should let you know that we are completely ad-free, which means we do rely on the support of our loyal listeners. If you've enjoyed what we've provided for you, if you like the articles on daminteresting.com, go on over to patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.